Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. As I was finishing up acute kidney injury last week, I know that I said that I was going to move into causes of acute kidney injuries, such as pre-renal, intrarenal, or post-renal, but I thought it was a good idea to go back and sort of review heart failure, and not just heart failure and what it is, but the pathophysiology of the symptoms of heart failure so that as we move into pre-renal and cardiorenal syndrome, you'll really understand what symptoms I'm talking about and how and why they occur. So to begin, heart failure is a clinical disease process which occurs when the heart fails to produce adequate cardiac output to meet the body's metabolic needs or is unable to accommodate venous return. So essentially, the the heart fails to squeeze or eject enough blood from the ventricle to meet the body's demand of oxygen. Injury to the myocardium or the heart muscle leads to heart failure, and this injury can be a result of ischemic heart disease, prolonged uncontrolled hypertension, diabetes, cardiomyopathies, valvular heart disease, and more. When the left ventricle, the main pump of the heart, can no longer contract strongly enough to maintain cardiac output or relax during diastole to accommodate for adequate end diastolic volumes, the blood volume backs up. Blood volume from the left ventricle backs up to the left atrium and furthermore to the pulmonary veins and lungs causing pulmonary vascular congestion. Pleural effusions can occur from increased interstitial fluid in the lungs due to elevated pulmonary capillary pressures. Pulmonary vascular congestion causes patients to have crackles or wheezing in their lungs from the accumulation of fluid, and decreased breath sounds developed where pleural fusions settle. A wet cough, which produces a white frothy sputum or blood-tinged sputum and exertional shortness of breath, are also symptoms of increased pulmonary vascular congestion. Orthopnea can occur due to pulmonary congestion, causing patients to need to prop themselves up on several pillows in bed at night, or they may find it easiest to sleep in a recliner chair because they cannot tolerate lying flat. Proxismal nocturnal dyspnea, or PND, is a condition that can occur which triggers patients to feel like they suddenly have to sit up to catch their breath while sleeping because of excess fluid buildup in the lungs. Excess fluid volume then continues to cause fluid back up to the right side of the heart, leading to jugular vein distension, peripheral edema, ascites, or fluid in the abdomen caused by portal vein distension, and weight gain due to this fluid retention. Fatigue and restlessness occurs 
due to this excess fluid volume, and it causes an increased workload of both the heart and the lungs. Confusion can start to occur due to hypoxia from poor gas exchange, and oxygen delivery is poor as well because of that lack of forward movement of oxygenated blood. Patients also have an increased risk of cardiorenal syndrome, which is a broad term indicating the poor function of the heart and decreased perfusion of the kidneys can lead to an acute kidney injury or acute kidney failure, which we'll talk more about in a later podcast. But ultimately, you've got this buildup of toxins in the body, such as urea, creatinine, and ammonia leading to confusion. Left-sided heart failure can be broken down into systolic versus diastolic heart failure. So let's review those. Systolic heart failure, also known as heart failure reduced ejection fraction, refers to when the left ventricle's ability to contract has decreased and that forward movement of oxygenated blood from the left ventricle is reduced. So your cardiac output is reduced. The heart's ability to pump blood and circulate oxygenated blood is measured by its ejection fraction. The ejection fraction is the amount of blood the left ventricle is able to eject during one contraction, also known as systole. Normal ejection fraction is averaged to be approximately 65%. Systolic heart failure or heart failure reduced EF specifically refers to the left ventricle's ejection fraction of equal to or less than 40%. When we talk about diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, this is when the left ventricle cannot fully relax to allow for adequate filling of that left ventricle during diastole or relaxation. This can result in increased end diastolic pressure due to stiffness of the left ventricle. Diastolic heart failure is considered to have a preserved ejection fraction, meaning the heart has adequate contractibility or excuse me, contractility, and that ejection fraction is equal to or greater than 50%, but it is stiff and the heart does not actually, that left ventricle doesn't actually relax fully, so it can't get a full end diastolic volume or it can't completely fill like it used to when it could relax completely. Now let's quickly recap the significance of a physical exam and the diagnostic findings of heart failure. So a thorough physical exam is one of the most essential aspects of diagnosing or identifying acute exacerbations of heart failure. Patients are advised to weigh themselves on a daily basis. Identifying a rapid weight gain of three pounds or more overnight or more than five pounds in a week is an indication that that patient is retaining fluid and headed for fluid overload state or heart failure exacerbation. Vital signs can indicate a decline or acute exacerbation as well. Tachypnea can occur because patients have fluid in their lungs, gas exchange is poor, and there's more burden on the right ventricle created from that fluid overload and poor left ventricular function. Tachycardia can occur when poor cardiac output is present as a compensatory mechanism for the body to circulate more oxygenated blood. Elevated blood pressure can occur from excess vascular volume, or patients can present with hypotension and still be fluid overloaded because that excess fluid now shifts out of the vasculature and into nearby tissue, which is what causes edema. Patients can present with dyspnea on exertion, breathlessness, a productive cough with a white frothy sputum, or even blood-tinged sputum. 
So when auscultating their lungs or listening to their lungs, they can have wheezing, they can crackles can be present, which indicates fluid in the lungs, or they can have decreased, decreased breath sounds over areas where pleural fusions have settled. When auscultating the heart, we want to be sure to document if heart sounds are distant, if arrhythmias are identified, or if extra heart tones are present, such as an S3. The presence of an S3 or a gallop can indicate heart failure. Patients can also then have jugular vein distension when lying at a 45-degree angle with their head turned to the left to assess their jugular vein. Another important piece of the assessment is to identify orthopnea, which is shortness of breath when lying flat. If a patient is having difficulty lying flat or even lying down at that 45-degree angle to check for JVD during your assessment, it can indicate that orthopnea is present due to pulmonary vasculature congestion. They can have abdominal distension or firmness due to ascites caused by backward pressure being put on the portal vein. Peripheral edema is common, and we can further base our or we can further classify uh, edema based on the length of time the pitting edema is present when we press a thumb into the lower extremities. Sacral edema is also a late sign of heart failure where fluid accumulates to create edema at the sacrum. And then again, I talked about a third heart sound being present. Um, an S3 is often associated with ventricular dilation, which occurs during heart failure reduced ejection fraction or systolic heart failure and can be heard during early ventricular filling. As we move into pre-renal causes of acute kidney injury, specifically cardiorenal syndrome next week, I want you to understand that cardiorenal syndrome encompasses many disorders that depicts this interdependent relationship of the heart and the kidneys. So in heart failure specifically, the venous congestion can be transferred to the renal vasculature leaning leading to renal venous congestion. So you've got vascular congestion and congestion in the lungs and congestion um, on the right side of the heart that leads to the peripheral congestion. And that puts pressure on the kidneys, which in turn causes pre-renal hypoperfusion, meaning low perfusion to the kidneys, resulting in a reduced GFR or the ability um, for the for the kidneys to really filter the blood. And it, it reduces the amount of renal blood flow. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. I really wanted to take that time to recap heart failure, the difference between systolic and diastolic heart failure, why the physical assessment is so important, and why what we see during our assessment, um, how, how, what's the pathophysiology behind that, and how does that relate to acute kidney injury and cardiorenal syndrome, which we're going to be talking about in the next few podcasts. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.